tonight, my talk is on freedom. Um, I have titled it Statutes of Liberty. What is freedom and what is it for? Not um, statues, but statutes. Statutes, yes. Thank you, Clark. So, so yeah, we're going to be talking about freedom tonight. And I know you're probably all wondering if that means I'm getting my American citizenship, but I'm not. Woo! USA. USA. <laughs> I'm Canadian, so still not free from the British. Um, but I started thinking a lot more about freedom recently while reading Jonathan Haidt's book, The Righteous Mind. And um, in this book, Haidt describes six moral foundations, or he calls them taste buds, that make up human morality in different cultures. So one of the six foundations is freedom. And he says that this is particularly valued in Western cultures. So I'm in this lecture, I'm going to look at what people commonly mean today when they talk about freedom. Then we'll talk about what happens when we pursue freedom for freedom's sake alone. Then I'm going to look at the biblical story as one of freedom and outline five principles of freedom. Okay, so because we're talking about freedom, I'm going to free you up, the people in this room, not the people in Zoom, because it will get too confusing. But I want you to participate for a moment, and I'm going to ask you to brainstorm. So what are some areas that you see people wanting freedom today? Or areas you want freedom? Financial freedom. Financial freedom. So maybe freedom from debt or taxes. Yeah, not, not paying hefty taxes. Yeah. Yeah. Sexual freedom. Yeah. 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 Um, obligation, like freedom from obligation. Yeah. Hey. Yeah, we'll build yeah, you might just need to mute. So, um, so yeah, that's great. Those are definitely some of them. There's a lot of things that we can talk about, probably. Um, so, I'm just going to just go over like a, a few of the ones that seem to be coming up a lot lately and there's a whole lot of other things that we could talk about too. Um, so, but just kind of get us started thinking about this topic. Of um, so first one is expectation and duty. So many people want to be free from the constraints of tradition and duty. They may experience shame and frustration when they're faced with ex expectations in their culture, their church or their family. And they desire to live this life that's true to who they feel that they are, um, rather than who they're expected to be. So you can think of pretty much any Disney movie here. Um, Frozen is a good one. The princess Elsa has a special gift, but she's constrained by her parents who tell her she has to be the good girl and not show her feelings. When she leaves her community, she can finally be free to express her individuality and creativity, making these, these castles out of ice. Um, our colleague Ben Kais calls Elsa's song Let It Go, probably the most, it's probably the most popular song I've ever heard kids singing, um, but he calls this a breakup song of the world. So freedom is found in leaving behind her family and small town, which is this common theme in coming of age movies we see uh, Another way that people try to be free is by transcending physical limitations. So we you know people love exploring. Traveling seems to be a particular obsession for millennials, my generation. Um, I recently was in the bookstore and saw a journal with a cover that said, let adventure fill your soul. Mm. Um, so now COVID is this evil barring us from having our souls filled. Mm. 
um, people have become more geographically transient than ever. We are frequently moving, but people also want to transcend the limitations of their own bodies. So medical science has allowed us to conquer many of the limitations we once would have faced. We can get new knees, new kidneys, or a new nose. And if you have enough money, and you know the right people, um, you can get a designer baby with green eyes and blonde hair or whatever else you would want. So, but for some people, finding freedom from physical limitation actually means transcending the body altogether. So does anyone know the term transhumanism? You've heard this? So transhumanists believe that one day we'll be able to actually upload our consciousness to computers and live in this world of our own choosing. Ray Kurzweil is an inventor and a famous transhumanist. Um, he writes about the possibilities such virtual realities offer us, particularly in our sex lives. This is from his book, The Age of Spiritual Machines. Once we are in a virtual reality environment, our own bodies at least the virtual versions, can change as well. We can become a more attractive version of ourselves, a hideous beast, or any creature real or imagined as we interact with the other inhabitants in each virtual world we enter. With this technology, you will be able to have almost any kind of experience with just about anyone, real or imagined, at any time. You won't be restricted by the limitations of your natural body, as you and your partner can take on any virtual physical form. Indeed, the world can continually reassemble itself to meet our changing needs, desires, and fantasies. So that's what you all have to look forward to. <laughs> so Kurzweil promises a world in which we can be whomever we want to be and face no limitations, either physical or ethical. This is a vision of individual freedom carried to the extreme. Um, Clark likes to show this episode from Black Mirror, um, sometimes at Libri. And uh, in, in, I'm gonna go slight spoilers, but I won't tell you what it's called. So in this, uh, this episode, two characters are in reality old and dying, but they meet in virtual reality and they can live out this fantasy relationship together with no social constraints that would have plagued them in real life. Um, there are no consequences and they can change their appearance and their environment at will. But we also see other characters who become jaded by this unlimited freedom and they live these violent, sordid lives. And we're left wondering at the end of the episode, is this really freedom after all? So another uh, limit is religion. And people want to be free of this, the limits that religion imposes on them. Um, at the same time, those who hold to religion want to be free to follow it in practices like, for example, wearing a hijab while working for the government or teaching their kids what to believe even if it contradicts the social majority. That's why Julia homeschools, so she can have freedom. <laughs> Some want to be free to show a cartoon of Muhammad and others are incensed by this. Mm -hmm. Countries that want to be known for their tolerance face increasing challenges as different religions face off in the same cities. Mm -hmm. And relationships. We've, also, oh, we've always had single people who don't want to be single, Married people who don't want to be married, who want freedom from both of those things. But never before have we had so many choices around how to do relationships. Polyamory, which means just having more than one sexual relationship at a time, has become an increasingly popular lifestyle. Many of its proponents actually call it a more ethical choice than monogamy, which is a big shift we're seeing. One of my friends told me it allows each person to get their needs met 
while another friend said it requires people to transcend jealousy. So it's actually making you into a better person. Mm -hmm. um, a third friend told me that those who expect their partner to be faithful to them are being selfish. Um, speech. Many people argue today about freedom of speech. Should they be able to say whatever they want? And if not, who should be able to decide who gets to say what? And what constitutes hate speech? Jordan Peterson rocketed to fame when he opposed the legislation of mandated use of people's preferred gender pronouns. And some people accused him of hate speech, while others lauded him as his champion of free speech. So people argue whether political correctness allows for more freedom or actually takes it away. And then, of course, societal systems. And much of the current discussion around freedom has to do with dismantling these various systems um, of oppression, education systems, family systems, religious systems, corporate systems, medical systems, media systems, economic systems, political systems, and many others have come under attack as inhibitors of freedom. And then, of course, we can't forget COVID. COVID has intensified debates around freedom. Should the government be allowed, us, allowed to tell us to wear a mask or who to have in our own houses? Mm -hmm. Is this the beginning of further government control? People spend endless hours reading and discussing various theories about how and why our freedom is being impeded. So these are just a few of the hot button topics around freedom. And you might notice that in this list, these examples pull from both the left and the right side of the political spectrum. You probably know people who are conservative who are fighting for these freedoms as well as people who are liberal. Um, and this is because both liberals and conservatives tend to have a high value for freedom, at least in North America. Um, and of course, especially in the United States. So it can get confusing when two sides are both claiming freedom for different reasons. And it's important <laughs> to distinguish between two ways of thinking about freedom. And they, these are called negative and positive liberty. So this, I had to read a lot of articles before I finally grasped this. I hope I finally grasped it. I wrote, I wrote it out completely wrong and then had to change it around. So I think I got it down now. Um, those who support negative liberty believe that the primary means to achieving freedom is to remove external constraints. So if I want to go to university, but my evil stepmother, which I don't have, this is a hypothetical, <laughs> um, locks me in the dungeon or threatens me with a gun, she's taking away. Um, we're talking today about World War II and the Nazis, like they took away people's liberty in this way, negative liberty. People who emphasize negative liberty think the government should stop people from interfering with each other um, so that each person can pursue their own life, liberty, and happiness. So take this example of a famous poem by a Victorian author, William Ernest Henley. This is called Invictus. Out of the night that covers me, Black as the pit from pole to pole. I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bludgeonings of chance, my head is bloody, but unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade. And yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Mm -hmm. You may have heard those final lines before. 
Um, so here we have an iron-willed man who is determined to succeed whatever the odds. And I actually know someone who has this two final lines tattooed on his arm. And the master of my fate and the captain of my soul. And this is, um, yeah, the kind of the American dream where someone works hard and goes from rags to riches because they are that determined kind of person. Um, and that's an example of negative liberty in action and the government should help take away um, people who are gonna interfere with that process of kind of rags to riches. So positive liberty on the other hand, isn't about external obstacles, but it's about an internal capacity. So it's not freedom from, it's freedom to. It's about the power to do something so if I grew up in a poor neighborhood with a lousy education, um, not, nothing against you, mom homeschooled me, <laughs> a broken family, bad nutrition, I'm prevented, again, hypothetical, I'm prevented from gaining the skills that allow me to get to university. So you see how that's different. It's not like someone's actually putting, um, locking me up or stopping me from going to university, but I don't have the capacity, the grades or whatever to go to university. Mm -hmm. um, so the government should provide things like universal health care and scholarships so that people have equal advantages. So they're doing something, not just preventing something. Um, in other words, leveling the playing field. That's a sports metaphor. <laughs> so, uh, so social justice movements tend to focus on positive liberty. And these two concepts of liberty are often actually pitted against each other. Those who promote negative liberty don't want to have an over-controlling government telling them what to do with their own property. Those who favor positive liberty don't want the rich or otherwise privileged to succeed at the expense of the poor or underprivileged. Both sides will accept constraints if they promote their own values. So those who favor positive liberty will support higher taxation and more regulations around speech, for example. But those who prefer negative liberty will be more likely to support harsher punishments for those who infringe on personal property. But for both, the idea of freedom is central. So, um, now we're gonna look a bit about the pursuit of, of freedom and where it leads us. So from abortion to gun control, freedom is often invoked as the primary determining factor in moral and political issues on both sides of the spectrum. But why is it that freedom matters so much? So these cries for freedom, they've always been happening, it's not a new thing. And, but I think that they have increased in some ways today and I think some of this is a protest against um, living in a meaningless, deterministic worldview. So our culture has lost its traditional sources of meaning. We now only have these scientific explanations for our lives. And we're told that our brains, our bodies, and our existence at this moment in time are all just chance. We naturally want to rebel against this and say, no, I'm not just part of the machine. Who I am, what I feel, what I experience matters. I'm not a clone. So we see this push back against hyper-rationalism, this desire to be significant, not just part of an abstract, inhuman machine. So we attempt to free ourselves from the cold clutches of science. This escape is primarily defined by the ability to follow our own desires, the emotions instead of the head. I changed that word from heart to emotions. <laughs> um, there's an emphasis on the significance and the uniqueness of each individual. But the problem is that we're given this freedom without any framework in which to make sense of it. So cultural commentator Mark Sayers says that humans have three tanks they need to keep filled in order to flourish. These are freedom, meaning, and community. And when one of these things is made ultimate, 
the other two tanks will be depleted. Our society has put so much emphasis on rights and freedoms that the other two tanks have been drained. Freedom what? Freedom, meaning, and community. So why is it that when freedom is worshipped, meaning and community are diminished? Mm. While both meaning and community require some limitation of individual freedom to happen. So at Labrie community, we try not to have a lot of necessary rules, but we do have some rules. And I need to know when it's my turn to cook, and the students need to know when they have to show up for the meal. If I only cook when I feel like it, or the students only show up when they feel like it, there's going to be a lot of frustration, <laughs> a lot of hungry people, and eventually distrust. Having some structure and expectation allows community work to be possible. One person doesn't get to run the show. Clark tries, but <laughs> doesn't succeed. You <laughs> would. We have to trust each other. So Julia trusts that I buy the students' groceries every week, even when I don't feel like it. And I trust that Julia will print out my paycheck every month, even when she doesn't feel like it. We trust that Clark will feed the chickens every day, even when he doesn't feel like it. You <laughs> And in turn, this trust actually brings us the greater freedom of being able to depend on each other. So I don't have to feed the chickens and balance the books because I trust Clark and Julia to do those things, just as they trust me to do what I'm responsible for. And we also rely on our students to help us with many things, from cooking to gardening and chopping wood, um, lots of other stuff too, but because we can trust them to help, we're able to offer this place of welcome. We gain, we gain greater freedom as a result of working together and limiting our short-term freedom. So community life requires not doing whatever you want, whenever you want, but being responsible to shared goals that you develop trust with each other. But this kind of interdependence is an anathema to individualism. So the book Bowling Alone examines how North American society has lost its commitment to community institutions, from bowling leagues to voting to volunteering. Instead, we've become these transient people with little to hold us to one place or group when a better opportunity comes along. This is a big problem in churches that I hear pastors talking about all the time to actually get core people to stay um, and help build the community. Getting people to commit and to show up, whether in group settings or in personal relationships, is an increasing challenge. And this results in erosion of trust. When, people, when you can't depend on people to be there when the going gets rough, then you can't really trust them. Wendell Berry writes of how our concept of freedom has destroyed community. Freedom, defined strictly as individual freedom, tends to see itself as an escape from the constraints of community life. Constraints necessarily implied by consideration for the nature of a place, by consideration for the needs and feelings of neighbors, by kindness to strangers, by respect for the privacy, dignity, and propriety of individual lives by affection for a place, its people, its non-human creatures, and by the duty to teach the young. So many people today lament environmental destruction, and they are urging people to limit their consumption of resources. But people have not been trained to limit themselves in any other area of life, so it's very hard mm -hmm. to turn back this tide. Mm -hmm. Barry writes, People are instructed to free themselves of all restrictions, restraints, and scruples in order to fulfill themselves as individuals <clears throat> to the utmost extent the law allows. So why would it be different when they're confronted with global disaster? Mm -hmm. 
This kind of freedom can't provide community or care for the considerations community has, including the environment. Without short-term limitation of personal freedom, we can't achieve long-term greater freedoms. Meaning also requires limitation. So sometimes we show this documentary at Liberty called All We Ever Wanted, and in it we meet various beautiful, young, talented Dutch creatives who on the surface seem to have everything together. But underneath the successful veneer, they're dealing with depression, anxiety, and obsessive compulsive disorder. The documentary highlights the fact that having too many choices can actually lead to paralysis. We need to find the perfect career that can use our talents, find the perfectly fulfilling relationship by using five dating apps at a time that present us with endless options, curate the perfect online identity that will cover our flaws and help people know how special we really are, <laughs> and discover our true selves out of many possible identities. It's exhausting. <laughs> Anxiety is an unsurprising result. Mark Sayers calls that the canary in the gold mine, or the coal mine, whichever one is. Even Kurzweil, the transhumanist, is aware of the potential dangers of too many choices in the future of virtual reality. This is what he says. It may seem that we will have too many choices. Today, so he was writing this book a while ago, actually, I can't remember, probably about 10 years ago or something. Today we have only to choose our clothes, makeup, and destination when we go out. In the late 21st century, we will have to select our body, our personality, our environment. So many difficult decisions to make. But don't worry, we'll have intelligent swarms of machines to guide us. <laughs> intelligent swarms of machines to guide us is very encouraging. But the problem is that algorithms and AIs can't truly help us make moral decisions. They are programmed by people who have their own biases and agendas. And science extends its influence more and more deeply into our lives. But science, its job is to only measure and describe. It can't actually tell us what we should do. So I was actually just watching an episode of The Good Place last night, Netflix show, um, when I was supposed to be writing my lecture. <laughs> um, but it was very interesting because there's a moral philosopher talking to a neuroscientist and she's, uh, she does an MRI scan of his brain and he's like, wow, look at, because he can't make decisions between things because he's so conflicted about what's right and what's wrong and so many ethical options. And so he looks at his brain and sees the different parts lit up and he says, wow, science has real answers. This is why people love it. And she says, yeah, this is why people hate moral philosophers. Um, but it's interesting that he says science has real answers when all that he's seeing is, oh, this is the decision part, making part of the brain that's lit up or not. It's not actually telling you what is a moral thing to do. Um, so what kind of answers can it really offer us? But this is often what, what kind of role we give science, even though it's not what it does. So, we're no longer defined by our membership in a community, our role in a family, or our adherence to a religion. Instead, we're people who choose to do whatever makes us happy, or rather, or rather whatever makes us feel momentary pleasure, because pleasure is often confused with happiness. Without larger frameworks of meaning to tell us what to choose, there's a void. And this void is one that advertisers are very happy to fill. We become these blank slates that can be formed into an impulse buying machine. We believe that we just look at all our choices objectively and decide rationally between them. But in fact, we aren't primarily thinking beings. We're primarily loving, desiring beings. And advertisers know this. They don't market to our logic saying like, 
check, uh, compare this product to this other product and what they do, and our product does something better. They used to do that, they don't do that anymore. They market to our fears and our desires, to our insecurities and our longings. So think about how often you see the word happiness in advertising, for example. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Donna bought a, a, paper don a donut in the paper bag the other day, gave me half of it, um, and on the paper bag it said, who knew happiness could fit in a paper bag? <laughs> Who knew? <laughs> and on a box of old teen biscuits that I saw in the grocery store this week, rich in flavor, rich in happiness. <laughs> we can be rich and happy just by buying old teen biscuits. So happiness is instant. You can eat it, but then it vanishes almost as quickly or else it goes here and you're less happy. <laughs> um, so online advertisers know a staggering amount about each one of us and can market accordingly. Social media platforms cater to our lowest impulses, getting us to click and scroll obsessively. And this is starkly illustrated in the new Netflix documentary, The Social Dilemma, to recommend. Former employees of Twitter, Pinterest, Google, Instagram, and others report on the manipulative and invasive tactics social media companies use to mine their users for data mm. and market to them. Tristan Harris, a former Google design ethicist, says that we've been concerned about when AIs get more powerful than our human strengths, but have ignored that they're already more powerful than our weaknesses. So this is what the film says, if you're not paying for the product, you are the product. Mm. We're free to follow our desires, but our desires are leading us around by the nose. We are far too easily fooled. For a while, we can just numb out of thinking about larger things and just pursue this consumer cult gaining more and more. But eventually this stops giving people enough meaning. Young Canadian musician Sean Mendez sings about this absence of meaning in a song, In My Blood. Laying on the bathroom floor feeling nothing. I'm overwhelmed and insecure. Give me something. I could take to ease my mind slowly. Just have a drink and you'll feel better. Just take her home and you'll feel better. Keep telling me that it gets better. Does it ever? Douglas Copeland also writes of this new world. No center, it doesn't exist. All of us look at our lives. We have an acceptable level of affluence. We have entertainment. We have a relative freedom from fear, but there's nothing else. In the absence of systems of meaning, we're seeing an increasing return to political religions. People are impassioned by political causes and preach about them like it's salvation. They want something bigger than themselves, a cause to commit to. The band Fleet Foxes sings, I was raised up believing I was somehow unique, like a snowflake distinct among snowflakes, unique in each way you can see. And now after some thinking, I'd say I'd rather be a functioning cog in some great machinery, serving something beyond me. Interesting. Being unique isn't enough to give us meaning. We need something bigger. But unfortunately, these larger causes still often center around individual fulfillment, just multiplied to the group. So politics becomes a series of groups fighting for control rather than those with a shared vision of a flourishing society. People who have been raised on freedom as personal choice have not learned how to make the hard sacrifices required to create lasting change. Yuval Levin writes, to liberate us purely to pursue our wants and wishes is to liberate our appetites and passions. But a person in the grip of an appetite or passion 
can't be our model of the free human being. Such a person is not someone we would trust with the exercise of great political and economic freedom. Such a person is not someone we would trust with the exercise of great political and economic freedom. The political religions have become characterized by reactionary behavior rather than long range thinking and hard work. Instead of becoming free thinking individuals with nuanced views, people look more and more like caricatures of extremes. People demand freedom, but they don't know how to use it. And this is how Wendell Berry puts it. As we now speak of it, freedom is almost always understood as a public idea having to do with the liberties of individuals. The public dialogue about freedom almost always has to do with the efforts of one group or another to wrest these individual liberties from the government or protect them from another group. And in this situation, it is inevitable that freedom will be understood as an issue of power. This is perhaps as necessary as it is unavoidable, but power is not the only issue related to freedom. So the promise of unlimited freedom as the way to human flourishing has proven false in many ways. The cracks are showing in debt, lack of financial freedom, as Donna mentioned, addiction, anxiety, and broken relationships, among other things. So what hope can we find? Can we get beyond these power struggles and truly be free? I'm going to turn now to looking at the biblical concept of freedom. The Bible can be read through many different lenses. But one of the most common themes is that of freedom. Now I want to take a quick look at the big story of the Bible as a narrative of slavery and deliverance. It's a freedom story. Okay, so first we have the creation story in Genesis. God creates humans and he creates them with certain limitations. They have physical bodies. They aren't spirits floating around like angels. They're separated into male and female. They have a responsibility to care for the earth and to create culture. And they aren't allowed to eat from the tree of good and evil, knowledge of good and evil. Limitation is a part of life on earth, but it's a good part of life. God created limited beings in a limited place and called it good. It was good. But the serpent, the voice of evil, hits the humans right at this point. He tells them they don't have to be limited. Instead, they can be like God. And the way to do this is by ignoring God's rules, the limitations that God has set. The snake suggests that God's rules are repressive, not for human flourishing. God can't be trusted. The snake is the first disinformation campaign, the first advertiser appealing to instant gratification. So Adam and Eve take and eat. It's the, it's the impulse, the lower animal impulse to eat the fruit and get what you want quickly. But when the humans decide to act as if they shouldn't be limited, that actually results in further limitation. Now they're separated from the garden and from the presence of God. But God already has a plan to bring freedom. The early prophecy in Genesis tells us that the human's eventual offspring will crush the head of the serpent. Fast forward to God's chosen people, the Israelites, living in slavery in Egypt. Where is the promised freedom? For 430 years, God seems to be silent blind to their oppression. Then the time comes. He stirs up a leader, Moses, and miraculously delivers the Israelites out of Egypt through the Red Sea. This becomes the most important moment for the Israelites, referred back to in Passover celebrations to this day. However, the Israelites don't fully appreciate their freedom. 
God tells them that even when they get to the promised land, they'll forget where their freedom came from and turn away from him. So he gives them laws. And the laws are more than just rules. They represent God's covenant with his people, his agreement to care for them through thick and thin. God makes these covenants throughout the Bible, throughout the Old Testament, with Noah, with Moses, with David, and others. He promises to be faithful even when his people aren't. God has not only bound the people to him, he has bound himself to the people. And in this way, we can see that God has limited his freedom in a sense. In the law God gave the Israelites, he made provisions for those who were oppressed in society. Although slave, slavery was widespread across cultures at the time, every 50 years, slaves were to go free and all property was to revert back to its original owner. So one person couldn't just end up owning it all. And every seven years, the land was to be allowed to rest and not be planted. So this was a concern for the land as well. The Israelite freedom was meant to bless other people and the land they came in contact with, not just themselves. As prophesied, when the Israelites became prosperous, they disregarded God's concern for freedom. They oppressed the widows, the orphans, and other vulnerable people. And this was one of the main reasons God's judgment fell on them. Because they disregarded the call to be a source of freedom to others, they became enslaved once again. First to their idols, which was a slavery of their hearts, and then to the conquering Babylonians, which was a slavery of their bodies, culture, and mind. But God allowed them to be enslaved so that they would turn to him again as a true source of freedom. God said that he wasn't going to break the covenant, even if they turned away from him and broke their part of the covenant, he was going to be faithful to his character. He would only discipline them, and then he would bring them back. He always promised them a deliverer. But the freedom was not just for them, it was for all nations. This freedom was not just about political or social justice, but about their hearts. The Israelites didn't pursue virtue, and so they weren't able to steward the freedom that God had given them. As the Old Testament unfolds, it becomes ever more clear that the Israelites can only be free if their hearts are changed. The Old Testament prophets speak of a new covenant, one written on people's hearts. While in the New Testament, we find the Jews still waiting for the promised Messiah. They expect this political leader who will free them from Roman oppression. And Jesus does come proclaiming freedom. He begins his public ministry by quoting from the prophet Isaiah. I almost said it like Isaiah. <laughs> That's how Brett would say it. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. But this liberation doesn't look the way the Jews expect because it wasn't primarily political. At the Last Supper, Jesus offers the disciples the blood of his covenant, which is poured out for the forgiveness of sins. That word covenant again. Mm. This represents what would happen on the cross, Jesus' final act for freedom. His death and resurrection established God's final covenant with us. So you can see that freedom kind of bookending um, Jesus' ministry. But what does this freedom that Jesus proclaimed look like? I'm going to look at five biblical principles of freedom or statutes of liberty. <laughs> and uh, they are, uh, number one, submission to truth. Number two, formation through discipleship. Number three, living with boundaries. Number four, 
embracing responsibility, and number five, receiving grace. So first, submission to truth. I want to return to the concept of slavery. In Jesus's time as today, slavery was an integral part of the Jewish story. Jews celebrated deliverance from Egypt and lamented the failings that had led their fathers into captivity in Assyria and Babylon. The Jews were oppressed by the Romans, pagans whose values were opposed to their own. And slaves were still everywhere in Jesus's time, the lowest members of society. Nobody wanted to be a slave. That was the great shame. Jesus understood the importance of freedom to the Jews, and he drew on it in surprising ways. This is from John chapter 8. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, we are the offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say we, you will become free? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. The slave that does not remain in the house forever the slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. So you can see what provocative statements Jesus is making, and you can hear the people getting more angry at him. He cuts to the core of the Jewish identity and the longing for freedom. He's showing his listeners that freedom isn't just about politics and power. True freedom starts with a heart that's attuned to truth. Truth isn't whatever we decide it is. It's given to us through the word of God, as Jesus says, if you abide in my word. We can only flourish when we work with the grain of God's reality. Truth helps us to recognize whether we're a slave to sin or a child of God. Those are the options. The lie that we most often believe is that sin is going to lead us to freedom and life rather than to slavery and death. Paul carries on with Jesus' metaphor of slavery and sin. In 1 Corinthians, he quotes a common saying that reveals a lot about the general attitude of the Corinthian people. Everything is permissible for me. <laughs> that was one of their proverbs. Um, freedom has no boundaries. <laughs> but Paul counters this. Everything is permissible for me, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Freedom as unlimited pursuit of our own desires only leads to us being mastered by those desires. So much of Jesus' work was to show compassion to the marginalized, those considered worthless or disreputable. Jesus' harshest criticism was for the unjust religious leaders who perpetuated this oppressive system while not lifting a finger to help those who suffered under it. But at the same time, when he talked to someone who was marginalized, he didn't treat them as blameless but he held them to their personal responsibility. So when he, he finds the woman caught in adultery about to be stoned unjustly by these men who left the man also responsible um, and taken only her and are using her to test Jesus, not caring about her, he says, neither do I condemn you, but go and sin no more. So he expects something from her too. It's not just, um, just uh, freedom without responsibility. The biblical picture of freedom is one in which people are liberated from unjust external oppression as well as their own self-centered and sinful behaviors and desires. Psalm 119 says, Keep steady my steps according to your promise and let no iniquity get dominion over me. 
Redeem me from man's oppression, that I may keep your precepts. Redeem me from man's oppression, that I may keep your precepts. So we should seek liberation from unjust power so that we can follow God's laws and be freed from sin. Paul makes this case starkly in Romans, using the language of slavery again. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. So we see this kind of lawlessness leads to more lawlessness. You present yourself to your desires thinking that you're going to get freedom, but instead you get more of your desires and you're never full and you're enslaved to those desires. And Paul's point is that we don't get to choose whether we serve. We only get to choose who or what we're going to serve. We do have choice, but the choice isn't to become an autonomous, rational self that can just stand back and make decisions with no influence on us. That doesn't happen. As Samuel told me in the back of the car when I told him my lecture was on freedom, he's like, I don't think freedom, you can be, I don't think you can have, really have freedom. There's always someone that you're serving. Um, he gets it. <laughs> Out of the mouths, mouths of babes. <laughs> the choice is, being, is between being enslaved to sin or serving God. And Bob Dylan illustrates this theology very well in his song, Gotta Serve Somebody. I'm just going to read a little section of it. You may be a construction worker working on a home. You may be living in a mansion, or you might live in a dome. You might own guns, and you might even own tanks. You might be somebody's landlord. You might even own banks. You may be a preacher with your spiritual pride. You might be a city councilman taking bribes on the side. You may be working in a barbershop. You may know how to cut hair. You may be somebody's mistress, maybe somebody's heir. But you're going to have to serve somebody. Yes, you're going to have to serve somebody. Well, it may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. He goes through all these different kinds of people <laughs> with that repeated refrain. We don't get to choose whether to serve. We only get to choose who to serve. We aren't actually the captains of our own souls. Novelist David Foster Wallace famously said, everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. Sin masquerades as that which gives us unlimited choice, but it actually leads to death, which is the biggest limitation of all. When we choose to worship God, we choose a master who actually cares about us and brings us life. That's the thing about these things that we're addicted and enslaved to. They don't care about us. The internet does not care about us. Alcohol does not care about us. All these things do not care about our flourishing. And amazingly, God gives us this ability to choose freely. He is not going to force us to follow him, and he is not going to manipulate us by making us click like on him. Our lives are not merely cogs in a machine with every inevitable step um, already planned out due to our genetic programming or social conditioning. 
our choices do have weight and meaning. And this is really good news for us. It matters. But it's also serious news. It's weighty news. C.S. Lewis says, there are only two kinds of people in the world in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. And it is a fearful thing to be given over to our own wills. Truth matters for freedom. The truth we need to see is that we have to choose who to serve. That is a choice we get. Okay, so that's truth. The second principle of freedom is that it requires formation through discipline. We have seen that unrestrained pursuit of our desires is a lie that leads us to slavery, not freedom. But it's important to say at this point that our desires do matter. This is one of my hobby horses I get on a lot. Um, we can easily swing to the other extreme and discount our longings and passions and think that being a pure rationalist is the goal, as many philosophers have believed. But our thinking is just as corrupted by sin as our desires. Hyper-rationalism can lead to atrocities too, as we saw in Nazi Germany. Actually, desire is necessary for bringing about change in our own hearts and in society. We need the engine of desire to achieve freedom, to propel us toward the goal. Our longing for freedom is a good thing. It's a God-given urge. But we have to understand that maturity requires careful shaping and directing of these desires. True freedom is being able to look clearly at what path our desires are taking us down and then to practice reshaping our desires so that they lead us where we want to go. Discipline has become a negative word in our culture. We no longer see it as the means to get us where we want to go, but rather as something preventing us from authenticity. We believe that liberating people to pursue their sexual appetites, for example, will bring flourishing. However, we don't apply this principle equally. It's strange if you think about it. We expect that people go to university and they work hard to pursue their dreams. They um, accept the limitations of the discipline that they're learning. Um, and that education requires discipline and hard work is part of the proof of its value. Okay, you put in, you know, whatever, four years, seven years um, to get your degree or degrees. Um, that shows that you have done something, you know. If it was instant, it wouldn't be worth much. And as Donna, who's a, a coach, and I have talked about a lot, sports also requires discipline. That's why I don't do them. <laughs> you can't grow, can't grow as a person without putting any work in. The same is true of our desires. When we constantly follow our animal impulses, we never learn to long for greater things. Immediate gratification, whether for sex, sugar, or Netflix, is all we know. And that's basically how two-year-olds function. When we demand freedom for freedom's sake, our freedom becomes enslavement. The author of Paradise Lost, John Milton, wrote of a double enslavement, both to tyrannical government without and to blind affections within. He said that people who are already enslaved inside will be very willing to accept the slavery of a government. Milton says, for indeed, none can love freedom heartily, but good men. The rest love not freedom, but license which never hath more scope or more indulgence than under tyrants. So he's recognizing that yes, the government and other systems can be oppressive. There are tyrants and we need to fight against such things. But unless we also fight the battle against our own corrupted natures in each of our hearts, 
our freedom will turn to chaos and we'll end up enslaved again. None can love freedom heartily, but good men. The rest love not freedom, but license. Do we love freedom or do we love license? <laughs> this quote has stuck with me a lot and I've thought of it. True freedom requires the pursuit of goodness, a virtue to result in flourishing. This is why we are seeing many churches return to traditional spiritual disciplines. They seem old and not trendy, um, but all of a sudden they're becoming trendy again because hmm, it's weird, they work. <laughs> Through repetition, these practices, fasting, prayer, um, lots of other things, uh, yeah, various kinds, in Advent is this time where we, all, we see a lot of these practices actually coming in Advent and Lent are still per two periods that we have, but it's great to incorporate those things into your life um, ordinarily too. And these practices shape our hearts to love what God loves and to be able to carry the weight of freedom. They provide this counter to the constant formation of advertising, social media, Netflix, etc. These th those things are constantly shaping us, <laughs> whether or not we think that they are, they are shaping us. And so we need to counter it with something. Discipline trains us to appreciate and to carry freedom well. When we look at the whole scope of the biblical story, we can wonder why God takes so long to bring us freedom. <laughs> I still wonder that. Why are you taking so long? But we can't know all the answers to God's timing. But in many cases, we see that God uses the process of time and discipline to train people into those who are able to handle freedom well. Yuval Levin writes about this process for the Israelites. Quote, when the book of Exodus tells us that God did not take his liberated people to the promised land through the land of the Philistines, but opted instead for a longer way through the desert, it also tells us why. For God said, if they face war, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. Untutored and unformed, confronted too quickly with the costs and burdens of liberty, they might choose slavery. For us, too, bearing the duties and responsibilities of freedom, without being prepared for them, poses great dangers, especially the danger of abandoning our liberty in return for security, or the passing pleasures and distractions of our abundant age. This danger is avoidable only if we take the long way to liberty, the way that prepares us through the practice of responsibility and through the formation and refinement of our souls. So freedom requires a submission to truth and formation through discipline. It also requires us to live with certain boundaries. This is number, number three, I guess. Um, so I worked before Libri um, for years with kids who had autism. And I learned that I needed to spell out expectations clearly or they would quickly do chaos. Um, I would use this picture chart, it was like a flow chart, the flow on the top and the flow on the bottom. Um, and Top would say, if you keep your hands to yourself on the bus, then you will be able to play on the playground and be happy. If you try and hit little Timmy on the bus, then you'll have to stay on the bus and have a timeout and be unhappy. <laughs> I also would give 10 to five minute warnings before we change activities. And these kind of guidelines help the kids know the boundaries and have a sense of security. But the same is true for adults. Boundaries are necessary for a sense of security. Todd and Townsend in your classic book, Boundaries, discuss the need we have to know what to let in and what to keep out. People who let harmful people into their lives and keep out the good ones 
do great damage to themselves and to others. Controlling parents, manipulative spouses, and wild teenagers all lack a proper sense of boundaries. Freedom should help us establish good boundaries, not just tear down all boundaries. Good boundaries let the right things in and keep the wrong things out. I was telling my friend about that book on boundaries when I was reading it, and he said, that doesn't sound like what Jesus did. I disagreed rather vigorously. Yes, Jesus allowed people to crucify him, that is true. But that was not being a doormat. It was a carefully calculated decision to make a sacrifice for something good. And at other points, Jesus confronted people, refused to speak when asked for an answer, withdrew from eager crowds to be alone, and even disappeared when people were trying to kill him. So Clark was reading to us this week about Jesus cleansing the temple, turning over tables, and righteous anger when he saw the boundaries of God's house being violated. Jesus demonstrates the necessity of boundaries. Boundaries are important for saying no to things, but they're also important for saying yes to things too. Um, I studied creative writing in university, um, and I found that invariably the worst writer in a class was always the person who thought they were so original and talented that they didn't need to learn any writing techniques. Their work was so genius that nobody else understood it. And their criticisms weren't helpful because they were only based on their personal opinion, not an actual understanding of how writing works. On the other hand, I remember one fellow student who really wasn't a great writer to begin with, but he worked so hard and put so much time in learning techniques, he worked harder than anyone else I knew, that he published a book of poetry and meanwhile, I'm still sitting, sitting around just saying, I could have done that. Um, so learning the rules of language is difficult, but it can also be fun. I remember my first poetry class when I learned the techniques to speed up or slow down a poem through line breaks and punctuation. I was amazed. It felt like magic. I still remember the feeling of sitting in that classroom being like, wow, you can do all of these things with just simple language techniques? So working within these boundaries, like the boundaries of English as a language, makes it exciting to see what you can achieve with what you're given. But if you could just do anything, it wouldn't be as interesting to, to push the boundaries. And boundaries are actually an antidote to choice anxiety, as we talked about earlier. They allow us to be present where we are, because we can't be in every place at once. When our choices are limited, we're free to enjoy what we've been given. We see that many in our culture right now are actually embracing minimalism and finding more contentment with fewer options. They want less, not more. Psalm 16 says, the Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. So this expresses a deep contentment and trust that the boundaries God sets are for our well-being, not to oppress us. This is the child who can trust his parents when they say no, rather than constantly fighting them. No longer do we have to make every choice alone without guidance. So we can be at peace knowing that the Lord is the shepherd who guides us to good places when we follow him. So freedom requires us to live with boundaries, not trying to be gods and create our own limitless universe. But this does not mean that we are supposed to be passive or powerless. This is the fourth principle of freedom, and that is of embracing responsibility. The third one was living with boundaries. So I have a, the fourth is embracing responsibility, and I have um, given this the 
the title, The Rule of Adulting. <laughs> um, and it's also known as a quote from Spider-Man, with great power comes great responsibility. We can easily substitute freedom for power in this sentence. With great freedom comes great responsibility. A baby can't govern a country because she's driven only by her immediate needs and doesn't know how to think or take care of anyone else. So we grow into freedom as we take on responsibility. There is no true freedom without responsibility. We see in the creation story that God gives humans responsibilities right away, also called dominion. Responsibilities are really actually pretty delightful, gardening, naming animals, having sex, but as we know, things quickly went awry. The relationship of care between humans, the earth, and God was broken. And we can see that in our failure to hold dominion well today. So there are two ways that we can fail to live up to the gift of dominion. First, we can become passive and refuse to accept our responsibilities. We may feel that we have no power to change our circumstances, especially if we've experienced powerlessness before. We can blame others for our problems and not try for any change. Or we can just be focused on the pursuit of pleasure and not want to do things that take hard work and are not very fun. Sometimes people actually get sucked into these highly controlling groups, even cults, because it's easier not to think for themselves or to have to exercise personal agency. It's really fascinating if you think about it that people today would want to be in a controlling cult. But it's easier to have all our views handed to us from the top. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, we can become dominating and controlling, taking advantage of others and the earth through our power. We can elevate various values to make certain types of people more worthy of having power. Some believe that the most rational people should be in charge, for example. Others believe the most underprivileged people should be in charge. As the saying goes, animal farm, all animals are equal but some animals are more equal than others. Everything becomes, again, about the struggle for power to assert your group's freedoms over another's. And as they say, absolute power corrupts absolutely. But neither passivity nor domination is the biblical picture of dominion. We're not meant to be either a doormat or a tyrant. We're told to be responsible stewards of what God gives us. This means that we shoulder the responsibility of being both a leader and a servant. Growing in maturity means using our dominion wisely. We talk so much about our rights in society, but rarely about our responsibilities. What if instead of demanding our rights, we each focused on what responsibilities we might have to care for each other? When we take on our role of stewardship, freedom doesn't end with us. Instead, it flows outward. To our families, to our communities, to our nations, and to all of creation. Creation groans for the revealing of the sons of God. When we become truly free, not to exploit each other on the earth, but to serve each other and to steward creation, creation will also be freed to be what it was created to be. So even Elsa in Frozen comes to realize the necessity of her community. Part of her wants to go on building fantastic ice palaces by herself. It's easier not to trust others. But instead, she returns to her kingdom and takes on the role of leadership, learning how to use her powers wisely for her own good and for her people. And this is actually what is the, the narrative heroic arc. Someone leaves their community, 
and then they come back with a gift for the community. That's what we see in myths and legends throughout history. Um, but we've kind of cut off <laughs> the last part of that. It's like you leave your community and then you never come back. Um, but this is the pattern of growing up. So Paul tells us to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. The Christian vision for society isn't of everyone being liberated to pursue their own selfish ends. Instead, it's a society of servants eager to help each other in imitation of Jesus. Imagine what that would look like if it were really put into practice. When we find ourselves insisting on our freedom, it's good to question our own motives. Freedom is necessary. But we should ask ourselves, what do we want to use our freedom for? Is it just for the pursuit of our own pleasure, or does it look outward for the good of our families, communities, and larger world? Are we concerned only with our own rights, or are we also actively looking for ways to commit and discipline ourselves, to follow something um, so that we can grow into a more meaningful and relational life? Are we trying to free ourselves to follow what will end up mastering us? Or is it something that will help us be obedient and serve God? Okay, so the last principle of freedom, statute of liberty, is that freedom requires us to receive grace. Freedom is not about being the master of your own fate and the captain of your own soul. It isn't also about pulling off your bootstraps and just trying harder, as some people who emphasize responsibility say. It is about humbly accepting the grace that comes through Jesus. If Jesus was God, he's our ultimate example of freedom. He decided to limit his power, complete power, in an extreme way through becoming human and subjecting himself to the same sufferings we face, and in fact, to death. Paul instructs the believers, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but in humility, I copied that. <laughs> uh, uh, but also okay. to the interests of others. There we go. Um, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Jesus was obedient. This is the greatest example of love, not unrestrained self-indulgence or power, but humble self-sacrifice so others can experience freedom. This is as countercultural as it gets today. But Jesus' death is not only an example of how to use freedom, it's also the means to live out that calm. So, we can have this mind of humility and self-sacrifice only through Jesus Christ living in us. We can't get there by ourselves. We're called not to create our own freedom, but to receive the freedom that has already been bought for us. But Paul tells the Romans, there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. So this life in the spirit that Paul talks about means that we're constantly dying to our false self, our sinful desires, and being renewed with Jesus. So God's spirit living in us helps us to submit ourselves to God. We can't do that alone. <laughs> Otherwise, we just keep doing what we don't want to do. 
even when we see that it's leading us to death. The Bible compares Jesus to Moses, who led the Israelites out of slavery. Freedom looks like following Jesus through death into life. We should never accept a cheap freedom that makes us a slave to our desires. Instead, we need to insist on a robust freedom that requires dying to our selfish desires and coming alive to all we were created to be. This is a freedom that can't be achieved by power, political or otherwise, but only through the gift of grace. All right, so that is freedom. The chanting has stopped around me. People are getting sleepy. Um, but thank you. Let's, uh, let's have some discussion. Um, maybe we can start with the, the people on Zoom and um, now I will make eye contact with you. Um, and if you want to unmute yourself and go, um, and if not, if, then I will turn to the people. You're all free. You're free to talk. <laughs> um, thank you, Liz. Yes. Um, I just reminded of the uh, phrase in one of the prayers from Morning Prayer in the uh, Book of Common Prayer, whose service is perfect freedom. Mm. Absolutely. A brilliant lecture. Can you say that one more time service for us? Yeah. Whose service is perfect freedom. Is perfect freedom. Yeah, that's great. That's great. Yeah, we often don't think of those two concepts going together, do we? Service and freedom. Well, we can open up to the room and then if someone, if there's a pause and someone in Zoom wants to go, we can continue. I was interested, thank you, Liz, for the talk. And um, I was thinking about the first part where you're talking about how freedom uh, where we don't want any boundaries, but what we end up being is enslaved to um, politics and to consumption. Mm -hmm. uh, and I guess I would add ideologies mm -hmm. because we're looking for a master. Right. It's just interesting that, that slavery, what we want is autonomy, but it's just not possible. Mm -hmm. We're always looking for someone else and I guess that's um, tied to meaning like that Mark Sayer point that mm -hmm. freedom is an attempt at trying to find meaningful action mm -hmm. I don't know if you could say more to that yeah you, you, you do so um, you're saying why why do we want to pursue freedom or um, yeah I, I guess that is it true that as we pursue freedom, we're really trying to pursue meaningful action rather than just doing what we want. I think it's I think it's a combination. Again, like most of our desires, there's the good and there's there's a good root of something, mm -hmm. but then it's also twisted by sin. Mm -hmm. So I think the longing for freedom is something that's and I think because we see that in the biblical story that God cares a lot about freedom and is in the process of delivering people both from like negative and positive liberty, like both of those things I think happen because he he leads the Israelites out of Egypt, um, but then also wants to deliver people from sin. So mm -hmm. I think it's both the internal and the external. 
Um, so I think our line for freedom is definitely like a good thing. Um, but then I think this is, this is where the voice of evil comes in and says, oh, look over there. <laughs> you think you, and distracts us from the thing that we actually want with true freedom and then says, this is going to bring you freedom. So I think we get confused about the purpose of what freedom actually is. I don't think allowing for freedom is a bad thing at all. I just think it's what we think will bring us freedom. And, um, and, that, and I guess the idea that we can be totally free, um, not have any, anyone over us or anything larger than us, I think that's, that's like the oldest temptation. <laughs> um, so that's a misunderstanding of freedom too, I think. Yeah, does that answer your question? Yeah, no, that's good. Uh, would you consider freedom vice or virtue? Neither. <laughs> I mean, well, I, I guess I would consider it, it depends, it depends how it's used. Maybe it's like a, um, it's a, yeah, I think it's, it's, it depends how, it depends how you define it. it if freedom yeah. is autonomy to do whatever you want, then yeah, I think sure. that's bad for us. Mm -hmm. But if freedom is, um, having our desires like brought into line with reality um, and, mm -hmm. and being able to, and to not be oppressed by evil, um, whether that's mm -hmm. through sin or through um, external evil oppression, I think that that's a very good thing. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it's good. I mean, like in Galatians, Paul says that Jesus set us free for, for freedom. Jesus has set us free. Mm -hmm. So, um, and yet right after that, he speaks of the fruit of the spirit. And freedom doesn't show up as a fruit of the spirit. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, it, it's kind of a somewhat of a motor behind it, mm -hmm. in a way, I suppose. But he says that we should not use our freedom to indulge the sinful nature, but but become slaves to love one another. So we should use our freedom to be slaves to one another. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Sounds great. <laughs> so it's like you were talking about services. Like Brett said, you know, service is total freedom. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's an interesting point. So I think, and I think when Paul's talking about that, like, um, it is for freedom you've been set free. Do not let yourselves become enslaved again. Mm -hmm. He's saying, like, look, don't go back into the stuff that you were taken out of. So he's saying, like, freedom is where you're supposed to stay. <laughs> don't go mm -hmm. back into that. So I don't think what he's saying is, like, do whatever you feel now. He's saying mm -hmm. that's what you were doing before and you thought brought you freedom, but actually that just brought you to slavery. So don't go back mm -hmm. there when you've been rescued from that. So I think you're right. The, the fruit of the spirit is like, the, that's the free life that is like counter to all the stuff that mm -hmm. those people have come out of, you know? Mm -hmm. um, yeah. That was good, guys. Um, I like when you just said a heart attuned to truth. That was a good little statement. Do you have any it? No, that was just kind of a society. Kind of I like that person. Mm -hmm. And then I did like what you said about the nobody really has a choice. Mm -hmm. They all just serve one or the other. Mm -hmm. Does that, how does like free will into the oh, please don't draw that card. Oh, okay. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. No, that's or you can talk about it, but, it, but freedom and yeah. people are different things, so yes. I mean, I think that like this is one of those things that we have to hold in tension because um, God values our free will highly, so he's not going like, to force our hand, but then, I mean, this is like the, the source of unending philosophical debate, theological debates about like how exactly that also like 
um, plays out with God's power and with God being omnipotent and also knowing everything that's going to happen too. So if God knows everything that's going to happen, does that mean he's forcing us to do things or whatever? But I would just say that we have to hold on to God's sovereignty as well as our free will, because that's, that's what we see that God holds people responsible <laughs> for their actions. Um, and that he gives them the ability to make choices. Um, it would be very unfair of God if he, if he held people responsible, if they didn't have any free will. Um, and, and yeah, like we see that God doesn't make robots. <laughs> he wants people who can freely choose to love him. Um, so I think that that does need to be emphasized. Um, so, so yeah, that's why I say when we have, we have choice, who we get to serve, God is not going to force us to fall into line with him. Um, and he will let us, he will let us like follow our will as C.S. Lewis says. Um, and, and hopefully we run up against reality and, and find out that it's not free. Um, but yeah, he's not going to, not going to force our hand on that. So um, I think that's a good thing, but I don't know if that, it's yeah. kind of an evasive answer because I don't know exactly no, how to how to balance this. Kind of how I've heard it too. Yeah, it's like it's a kind of a measuring stick. Like if I can choose to anything, and I still choose God, I think it's kind of like I have the free will to choose whatever, and I choose God. I think he kind of uses that as a bit of a measuring stick. Like yeah. you're choosing me over all the other choices. Yeah. No. No. I don't know if anyone else has any thoughts about that or anything else. <laughs> you what you mentioned about you know cults, how we tend to we have this fear, but people will still choose to go into a more restricted mm -hmm. situation because you know we want to have that sort of thing that we perceive to be greater than ourselves mm -hmm. to help dictate mm -hmm. and also mm -hmm. maybe we limit the boundless choices that are. You know, because mm -hmm. you go to the store with kids and they don't value because they need it. And we're, we're probably similar, but I also, you know, was struck by how, as, as Christians, we can sometimes not understand the level of freedom that we have even in our faith. Because, you know, that's a really legalistic piece totally. And so we mistake what is not authentic, Jesus, authentic freedom mm -hmm. for something else. Because, again, it's easier to have a nice checklist to follow to give us that mm -hmm. sense of security that we just don't take advantage or, or fully embrace or yeah and i think that's why it's really important to, to emphasize like that's the spirit working in us because i think um yeah it's like jordan peterson talks a lot about responsibility and like people need to take responsibility for their lives which i think is a great thing <laughs> that's part of what i said too but i think if that's where you end it then you don't you know that there's times where you can't do that you know <laughs> there's times where your life falls apart and i think that's you know and i think so we need to know that God is gracious with us and that he helps us when we can't do those things, you know? Um, and there's, there's kindness and compassion there. And um, yeah, we can't, we can't do that process by ourselves. So I think um, we all go through, <laughs> we all go through those periods of things falling apart. And um, yeah, we need to know that there's, that, that God is helping us. <laughs> um, and, and it's not just a set of rules to live up to, you know? That's it's relationship, um, and that God was faithful through this whole process that we see with the Israelites. Like, doesn't matter how many times that they they turned away from Him, did their own thing, but He kept following them. Um, so I think that's very like that can be a good place of security for us. Um, 
to to know that God doesn't, <laughs> doesn't give up on us. Yeah. Greg, I see that you've unmuted yourself, so I'm thinking that you want to say something. <laughs> well, that's never happened before. <laughs> yeah, I think it, it's interesting. I don't think as humans we really can can put our finger on freedom. I don't think we can really understand it, particularly as Christians, because um, well, like you quoted uh, C.S. Lewis, you know, and there are those who say to God, you know, thy will be done. And I think we can sort of tie that into Psalm 37, verse 4, you know, delight in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. And then we have what Brett said, you know, was, uh, about serving God is perfect freedom. And you sort of put this all together and where where does freedom sort of fit into that? We have supposedly have the the ability to to choose god or or not um but then if we choose god with our freedom then by sense we're giving up our own freedom and uh, you know um to giving to giving the freedom over to god to you know if you like we of course none of us come anywhere close to it perfectly you know or even it even adequately but you know we're giving up our freedom you know, and yet perfect service is perfect freedom. And I just, you know, I just don't think as humans, I think the whole concept of freedom, we, we can't really f fully grasp. Uh, presumably the next life we will, you know, but then in the next life there's evil and sin are no more, so we can't choose those. So <laughs> I don't know. I don't, I just got questions. I don't have any, I don't have any answers. <laughs> I mean, you're touching something that is really complex there. Um, and, and again, I think it's like related to Blair's question too. <laughs> yeah. you know, what, how can we serve and still be free? <laughs> um, and again, I think it's like this we're kind of making this constant choice. And that is our, that's, um, we have this concept of pocket liberty sometimes called active passivity. So it's like you get the choice to say yes to God working in you. Or you can say no, um, but God is not going to force it to happen. So Mary is the example that's often used with that. Um, and she couldn't just like immaculately conceive by herself by like gritting her teeth. Um, but God also was not going to force her to carry Jesus. Like you see a lot of the Greek gods do. They just like disguise themselves and then impregnate mm -hmm. someone. Like God didn't do that in that way. He, he came to her and wanted her consent. Mm -hmm. um, and and so she that was like she had the choice to say yes or to say no um and so she's working with god in that way but but yeah he doesn't force force her so i think that's like the choice that we're constantly given is we can say yes 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 or we can say no 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 um and and that is that is freedom but yeah in terms of in terms of this kind of rationalistic like I can just do whatever I want without any external influence. Like that's just not reality of living in the world. We are, we're not that kind of creature. <laughs> um, so yeah, I mean, that, that can be kind of frustrating. At least like I like to think that I'm a lot more rational than I am <laughs> when I get on my rants about various things. But, um, but yeah, I think recognizing that. Um, but basically if we say yes to God, then we're saying yes to giving up our freedom, but in doing that is where we find joy. 
Yes, but I also would say like, it's not, um, it depends what we mean by giving up freedom. Again, that's why I wanted to say that mm -hmm. about um, dominion, right? Because we still are given choices to do things and it's not just about passivity or being a doormat and like letting people walk on us or, or having bad boundaries or whatever because, um, yeah, because God doesn't force our hand and he, he, he wants us to keep saying yes and also that we have, um, God's not going to tell us every single thing to do either. So like we've talked about this before in uh, lunch discussions about um, making decisions. God isn't going to say like, okay, walk five steps this way walk 10 steps this way every day when you get up. He's, he's mm -hmm. trusting us to grow into exercising our choice-making and agency as we, as we grow. And that's what parents do with children too, right? Like they give them increasing freedom the more they can handle it. And they're not like when, when you're a toddler, like you have to be told a lot to do, but as you get older, hopefully your parents can let go a little bit. Um, and that's, that's healthy parenting. That's not helicopter parenting or like, I don't care what you do parenting. That's like the right, the right balance, which I'm, I can talk about cause I'm not a parent. So it sounds easy to me. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so I think, I think God does give us, um, freedoms where he's not just like, you know, steer, like steering everything. However that works out with God knowing everything. I don't know. I'll leave it to the philosophers, but I think, yeah, I think we do have real choice and it doesn't matter. Um, like I've told this story before, about a friend who, was trying to was praying and trying to discern if she should marry this guy and she felt like god told her um you get to choose like it wasn't a right or wrong thing if she chose mm -hmm. to marry him or not and she got the choice uh, to make mm -hmm. so some sometimes i think um i think often god does that you know mm -hmm. and uh yeah anyways i don't know if that to me that felt related <laughs> to your question okay. thank you liz well yeah we can if there's no one else we can call it a night Thank you. Um, thank you so much for coming. You are free to leave. <laughs> thank you, Liz. Freedom. <laughs> 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 <laughs>